The lowest of the floors they occupy, the second floor, is what brownstone residents know as the parlor floor, with larger rooms and higher ceilings than the rest of the dwelling. The living room faces out on West 74th, and the heavy drapes are drawn. Behind those drapes, the two men are waiting. The men have been in the house for over an hour. They were looking for things to steal and didn't care how much of a mess they made in the process. They filled a couple of pillowcases with what they'd selected, and these are in the living room now. They could have shouldered them and left before the Hollanders came home, and now, as one sits in the other paces, I can imagine them thinking of doing just that. They've already done a good night's work. They could go home now. But no, it's too late now. The Hollanders have arrived. They're climbing the half-flight of marble steps to their front door. Inside, the two men hear the key in the lock. The seated man gets to his feet. The pacer moves toward the door. Bern Hollander turns the key, pushes the door open, lets his wife enter first, follows her inside. Then they catch sight of the two men, but by now it's too late. I could tell you what they did, what they said, how the Hollanders begged and tried to bargain, and how the two men did what they'd already decided to do. How they shot Bern Hollander three times with a silenced 22 automatic, twice in the heart and once in the temple. How one of them raped Susan Hollander fore and aft, ejaculating into her anus, and then thrust the fireplace poker into her vagina, before the other man, out of mercy or the urge to get out of there, grabbed her by her long hair, yanked her head back forcefully enough to separate some hairs from her scalp, and cut her throat with a knife he'd found in the kitchen. I would be using my imagination, but that's part of the equipment for a policeman or a private detective. And so I have imagined the final moments of Byrne and Susan Hollander. Of course, I have gone much farther in my imagination than I have felt it necessary to recount here. The facts themselves go farther than I've gone here. The blood spatters, the semen traces, the physical evidence painstakingly gathered and recorded and assessed by the forensic technicians. Their daughter, Kristen, found the bodies. She'd spent the evening with friends in Chelsea and was going to stay over at a girlfriend's apartment in London Terrace, but that would have meant wearing the same clothes to work in the morning or else running home first to change. A man she just met offered her a ride home, and she took it. It was a few minutes after one when he pulled up and double-parked in front of the house on West 74th. He was going to walk her to her door, but she stopped him. Still, he waited while she crossed the sidewalk and mounted the steps waited while she used her key, waited until she was inside. Did he sense something? Probably not. I suspect it was a habit, the way he was brought up. When you see a woman home, you wait until she's safely inside before you take your leave. So he was still there, just about to pull away, when she reappeared in the doorway, her face a mask of horror. He killed the ignition and got out to see what was the matter. The story broke much too late for the morning papers, but it was the lead item on the local news, so Elaine and I learned about it at breakfast. The gal on New York One reported that the victims had attended a concert at Lincoln Center that evening, so we knew we'd been there listening to the same music with them. What we didn't know then was that they'd been at the patrons' reception and dinner as well. It was unsettling to think we'd been in the same concert hall with them, along with several thousand other people. It would be more unsettling later to realize that we'd all been part of a considerably more intimate gathering. 
A police canvas of the area turned up a neighbor who had spotted two men leaving a house, probably the Hollander house, sometime after midnight and before one. She noticed their departure because each had a laundry bag slung over his shoulder. She didn't regard the sight as suspicious, never thinking they might be burglars, assuming instead that they were roommates, headed for the 24-hour laundromat around the corner on Amsterdam. The description she furnished was vague, and a session with a police artist led nowhere, as she had never gotten a clear look at their faces. She thought, although she couldn't swear to it, mind you, that one of them might have had a beard. Forensics thought she might be right. They'd recovered a couple of hairs that had almost certainly come from a man's beard, and you didn't need a DNA check to know they weren't Bern Hollanders, as he was clean-shaven. According to the woman, it was possible that one of them limped. She remembered there was something awkward about his walk, attributing it at the time to the weight of the sack of laundry he was carrying. And maybe that's all it was, but maybe he'd been limping. She couldn't say for sure. When you look into a story that sells papers, you keep it on the front page whether or not there are any new developments. The Post showed the most imagination, actually running a sketch of the suspect with the headline, Have You Seen Him Limping? It showed a man with a beard and generally demonic facial features, a sack slung over his shoulder, furtively slouching. The implication, of course, was that this was a police sketch, but it was no such thing. Some staff artist at the paper had cobbled it up to order, and there it was on the front page, with the Post's readers urged to come up with a name to go with the imaginary face. And, of course, dozens of them did, flooding the police tip line, the number of which the paper had been considerate enough to furnish. One caller said the cops ought to take a look at a guy named Carl Ivanko. It was more the description than the sketch, really, that had brought Carl to mind, although there was something about the sketch that had triggered his action, even though it didn't bear much resemblance to Carl. The thing was, Carl had something wrong with his hip, and it gave him an awkward walk some of the time. It wasn't a limp, not exactly, but what it came down to was he walked funny. But then a lot of guys have a bum hip or a trick knee, and maybe had a beard once. What made the connection see was the poker, and that wasn't based on anything that happened, not as far as the caller knew. It was what he'd said, Carl, and he'd said it more than once. Of a woman who'd failed to reciprocate his interest, and of another woman who'd caught his eye on the street. What I'd like to do, Carl said, I'd like to take a hot poker and shove it up her cunt. Or words to that effect. There are lots of ways to find someone when you want to badly enough, but Carl turned up on his own before they could try most of them. Brooklyn police officers responding to a complaint of a bad odor emanating from a locked ground floor apartment in the 1600 block of Coney Island Avenue broke in to find two male Caucasians, ages 25 to 35, who had apparently been dead for several days. Documents on the bodies, later confirmed by fingerprints, identified the two men as Jason Paul Bierman and Carl John Ivanko. Both men had died of gunshot wounds. Ivanko, sprawled full length on the uncarpeted floor, had been shot twice in the chest and once in the temple, in a manner more or less identical to Bern Hollander, and, ballistics later established, with the same twenty-two caliber automatic. The cops didn't have to look hard for the gun. It was still in Jason Bierman's hand. He was sitting on the floor in the corner of the room, his back against the wall, his gun hand in his lap. 
He had apparently put the barrel in his mouth, tilted it upward, and fired a single shot through the roof of his mouth and into the brain. Both of the pillowcases from the Hollander bedroom turned up in the Beerman apartment, one empty and wadded up on the floor, the other half full of stolen goods on the unmade double bed. Forensic analysis established that the facial hairs found at the crime scene were from Carl Ivanko's beard, and the semen recovered from Susan Hollander's anus was his as well. Posthumous x-rays of Ivanko revealed deterioration of the hip socket that would account for the limp the witness had reported and the caller confirmed. I didn't know all of this at the time, although it was all reported at considerable length on television and in the papers. By then I had something else on my mind. Besides sending in a contribution, Elaine typically orders tickets to around a dozen concerts during the month-long Mostly Mozart Festival. I kept her company more often than not, and when business or inclination keeps me away, she can always find a friend to use my ticket. We went to the opening concert on Monday night, and our next tickets were for Thursday night, a sold-out affair with Alicia de la Rocha at the piano. By then we'd learned that the Hollanders had not only attended Monday's concert, but had been at the patrons' dinner as well. The killers had not yet been found, and Avery Fisher Hall was buzzing with the story. As far as I could tell, it was all anyone was talking about. That was Thursday. Saturday morning, the cops kicked the door in on Coney Island Avenue, and a few hours later, the media had the story, and the city, especially that part of it that lived on the Upper West Side and went to concerts, breathed a sigh of relief. The killers were no longer at large, which was wonderful, and in fact, they were dead, which was even better. The story would still be interesting enough to sell newspapers for several more days, maybe even a week, but it was already beginning to fade into the...